Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. We're calling our current series, Let's Talk About. And in it, we are talking about how the gospel applies to things we deal with daily. Today, we're tackling the topic of sex and sexuality with Rachel Gilson. If you don't know her, Rachel lives in the Boston metro area working for Crew on the leadership team for theological development and culture. She has a Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She's the author of Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. And her writing has been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, and Desiring God, among other places. Just a heads up that due to the nature of the content of this episode, you might want to use headphones to listen in on this conversation if you have little ears nearby. Rachel Gilson, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You've been on my list for a really long time, and I just had the chance to meet you in person last week. Have you recovered from the Gospel Coalition uh, Women's I have Conference? Absolutely not recovered. I am in a major <laughs> sleep deficit, but my joy tank is high. I would say the same. I did not know how many days we were there. We were in this kind of conference center with no windows. And I'm just right. like, how many how many weeks have I been here? I feel like I've been gone for a year, but yeah, it was so rich and so full. Um, and I had the chance to actually sit in on a panel that you did. It was Breakout 6, one of the only panels that I was able to sit in on that I wasn't participating in myself. <laughs> And you guys talked about sex and sexuality, and I was so glad because it's something that I've wanted to talk to you about on the podcast for about two years, I think, since I talked to your really good friend, Rebecca McLaughlin. She said, you know, the one person you need to have on is <laughs> Rachel Gilson. She's my hype girl. I completely agree. After having read your book, it's called Born Again This Way. And people are going to hear more about your story as we continue in this conversation. But when you guys were sitting on the panel... You were able to have this conversation with a single gal who comes from a history of sexual brokenness. You were able to have the conversation with the kind of stereotypical good Christian girl who's married, Rebecca, and yourself. So you're going to tell a little bit more about your story here in a second. But as we move forward, one thing I thought you guys did so well in the panel was just to set up the conversation saying, 
there are such a wide variety of backgrounds that we're all coming to when we kind of gather around the word to have this conversation. And so I just want to be so sensitive. I know you do too. People are coming to this conversation from like a history of sexual abuse. There's just so many different experiences that we just want to acknowledge in our limitation, you know, just the two of us. We don't have a whole panel here today. I kind of wish we would, but we might be here all day long. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to take one angle on it. So give us grace as we approach this conversation and know that we're just praying that this will be a help to you. But we also are going to just admonish you to keep turning back to the word. That's right. That's one thing that Rachel does so well in her book. I just felt like it was packed with scripture opportunities to look to the text for instruction. And so we hope to do that today. And we also hope that this conversation may be an angle that you maybe haven't considered. Certainly for me, Rachel, it's a newer approach to the conversation. I think it was a missing take, especially in Christian circles. So let's just dive right in. Can you tell us just a little bit about your own story, your background, how God rescued you and how the Holy Spirit just refused to let you go? (laughs) Yeah, I would be delighted to share. I love everybody's story. So I like to share mine and then hear everyone else's. So I grew up in an extremely not churched household out in Southern California. My parents just not even Christmas and Easter types. So by the time I got to high school, I just hadn't been formed by any religious tradition at all. And I was really animated by two things by the end of high school. One, I was desperate to know what was true. Like I just wanted to know what was real. I I cared about big ideas, this kind of thing. And I'd had some exposure to religious ideas. There were a lot of churchgoers near me. But whenever I tried to interact with Christians my age, you know, in high school, I just wasn't that impressed with the answers they were giving me. And so eventually I was like, no, I don't I think maybe religion just for people who don't know how to think for themselves kind of turned away intellectually. But the other thing I realized in high school was that the way that my female friends felt about young men was actually how I felt about other young women. And that was sort of weird to process that one very typical narrative around like a LGBT story is that people will know very young, you know, whether or not they're same sex attracted. It turns out that's quite typical for boys. It's more typical for men who experience same sex attraction to know when they're really little, even before they know exactly how to articulate it. It's much more typical for women to realize later, you know, adolescence, later in life. Anyway, so when, when I developed these, or I noticed, I don't know, whatever language is, is best attractions in high school, I was like, well, that's weird. Where do these come from? And yet, as I started having romantic and sexual relationships with other young women, I was like, oh, this feels like home. Because I tried to have boyfriends, but I was, I was like, no, oh, this is sort of lame. <laughs> and were you coming from a context where like, it was not appropriate to well, think that way? Or was question. it already at that time? Because I know you and I are about the same age. Yeah, but it's changed a lot. Yeah, it's changed a lot, even in California. See, yep. I'm from Oklahoma, so, oh, yeah, you know. yeah, different vibe. Yeah. Different vibe. Yeah, for sure. So I I had my first girlfriend in 2001. So I definitely, at that time, when I realized I was attracted to her, I was like, well, I can sort of tell this is wrong, like air quotes wrong. But then when I tried to check my, you know, drunk drawer of moral thinking. I was like, wait, but I don't understand why it would be wrong. You know, way before the phrase love is love was a thing. I was like, this isn't going to hurt anybody. It can't actually be wrong. And I sort of knew that 
the future was with me. So this was two years before Texas overturned that sodomy law. It was three years maybe before Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. So I knew I want to marry a woman someday. Going forward, this is going to be with me, even though it's a little subversive now. But my mom and dad, they didn't care at all. Okay, so tell me a little bit about, you know, you are living a lifestyle as an, like an outspoken lesbian, like were your parents aware of this or <laughs> yeah. friends, all of these things. And then how did God kind of just come in and wreck what, what you were in the way you were living? Well, there's a couple different things there. Yeah. So one, my parents were divorced. So like my mom knew we were going through hard stuff. I should tell you my mom's story of coming to faith. Sometimes she came to faith mm. in her late forties after decades of alcoholism. Wow. It's actually awesome. But so she didn't, she didn't care that I had a girlfriend. My dad didn't even know until way, way later when I published my story in Christianity Today and he read it and he was like, wait, I didn't know about this. And I was like, oh my God, I never told my dad. Oops. But the interesting thing is I was so secure in my sexual identity and that I wanted to marry a woman, but I didn't actually like calling myself a lesbian because the word had all these political overtones to me or like that I needed to like have short hair or like hate boys or like things like this. And I was like, I don't want to do anything to do with that label. Like I just like women. That's, that's all. So I was a little uh, young in there, but anyway, so I went off to Yale for my undergrad experience. I was super excited to move to new England because I was tricked into thinking it's always October, you know, these like beautiful <laughs> autumn leaves as a Southern Californian. I had no idea what it meant to actually be cold, but you know, this very nice school invites you to come and you know, you bite the bullet. And so I was excited because I was going to be in this place of big ideas, which I loved. I was going to be in a place where I could more fully express my sexuality because being in like a one stoplight town and it's sort of conservative where I grew up, even though California I just thought I'm going to have all the room to explore everything I love. And God just blew me up in like the kindest mm. of possible ways. So on the one hand, I discovered I wasn't as smart as I thought I was because suddenly I was surrounded by world-class scholars. And then the other thing that happened to me was the girl that I was dating at the time broke up with me in like very dramatic teenage fashion. And you know, when you're a teenager, all your heart's just so tender. And it's like, oh, I'm never going to recover. That was just this terrible pity party all during my the low point the major low point you know i wasn't like oh i need to turn to jesus because i didn't believe in jesus you know i thought christians were stupid bigots i thought god was for weirdos so i drank a lot and tried to figure out if there was a hobby i could do that wasn't too complicated for me but in that space god kind of crept up on me so very early in the spring semester it might have been the first lecture back we heard about Rene Descartes, who's the old dead French guy who invented the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Okay. And the lecturer was explaining to us how from that phrase, he built this whole proof for the existence of God. And I remember sitting in that lecture thinking that is a really stupid proof for the existence of God, which I still happen to think. But I was kind of disturbed that I had never heard that proof for the existence of God before, because I prided myself on being like a very competent atheist, you know? And so... I was just bothered and uh, what if there, I don't know, what if there's something to this? So I, you know, I'm mm -hmm. an elder millennial. So I Googled it, you know, I got back to my room. <laughs> I had a Dell laptop that you needed all your upper body strength to get open, you know, you got to plug lid. in the ethernet yeah, cable. Exactly. <laughs> plugged in the whole thing. And I would just fire religious search terms, you know, but you like you follow hyperlinks forever and you're like, how did I even get here? And huh. over and over again, I kept coming back to reading about the character of Jesus. And wow. I remember, it's 2004 at this point, 
I, in my mind, had thought of Jesus like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga, which for me as a young progressive was like not a helpful image, right? Right. The Jesus I was reading about was really intelligent, really tender, like basically just really interesting. I wasn't saying I want to become a Christian or anything, but I was like, this is sort of new and interesting. But I also felt like this barrier immediately with my sexuality. Like, no, like Christians hate gay people. Like, there's just not a thing here. But the only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two young women who were dating each other. And one of them was training to be a minister in the Lutheran tradition. So I was like, okay, so maybe they know something I don't know. So I went to talk to them and they were like, yeah, it's been a big misunderstanding. The Bible affirms gay marriage. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, so they gave me a packet explaining, you know, the correct way to interpret the Bible. And I took that thing back to my room because I love a packet, you know, and I was excited and I was reading it and it made a ton of sense until I started comparing it to the Bible verses that I was pulling up on my computer. I didn't own a Bible at this point because I thought, you know, I should look at the primary documents. So that kind of thing. And, uh, and then eventually I was like, oh, I don't think these girls are right. Like they're super sweet, but there's just no way the Bible teaches that. Hmm. So I sort of felt like that was so stupid to even think that there was something here, whatever. Maybe a week later, I don't know. It was not very far after that. I happened to be in the room of a friend of mine or more like a friendly acquaintance, really, who was a non-practicing Catholic. And she was deep in her room. Have you ever seen Gilmore Girls? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Rory Gilmore was my year. 07 at Yale. And the, okay. the dorm rooms that they have on the show actually legit do look like our dorm rooms. So you can kind of picture that, right? So she was deep in her room, putting something in a bag. And I was standing in her doorway and next to her doorway, there was a bookshelf. And I love it, looking at people's bookshelves and judging them, you know? And she had a copy of a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And I hadn't been raised on Narnia, so I didn't have like kind of the right affiliations. Yeah. But the title was super appealing. And I really wanted to read it, but I was too embarrassed to ask her if I could borrow it. Like, oh my goodness, of course she would have loaned it to me, but I just stole the book. You know what I mean? It's like, it's right in the bag. No problem. I have no moral compass, whatever. So I'm reading this contraband book between classes one day. It's like awkward period where you can't really do anything except like sit and read between it. And in the middle of, I mean, I don't remember what chapter I was in or anything like this. In the middle of reading it, I was suddenly overwhelmed with hmm. the reality that God does exist. And not like, you know, Zeus or something, but the God who made everything, who made me, who was perfect. And the only thing I felt was fear. Because I knew me. I was mean. I was arrogant. I was sexually immoral. I lied. I cheated. I was reading a stolen book. You know, it was sort of like everything. <laughs> you can't single, get around it when you you're know, holding a like, stolen for book. real. I was just like, uh-oh. <laughs> It was a bad moment. Basically, I got the bad news first. Yeah. yeah. Really quickly with that, I also understood, I think the spirit made known to me, because I don't have any other explanation for it, but that part of the reason that Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me. And that hmm. the only way to be safe was to run towards God, not away from God, specifically mm -hmm. towards Jesus. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't want to become a Christian. Christians are super lame, you know? But I was also like, well, I can't pretend that this isn't true just because it's inconvenient for my life. Like, that's pretty stupid. This is a good deal. I should take the deal, you know? And so 
I didn't really, I didn't have a campus minister or anything like that with me, but I kind of knew I should pray. So I closed my eyes and I was like, mm, okay, fine. I'll become a Christian. And then I went to class. Like, luckily I found Yale's crew group a couple yeah. days later. They were having a Valentine's party and I just followed them around like a little baby duckling, you know, learning all the things you needed to learn to be an evangelical. But I also learned really quickly, well, my same sex attraction isn't going anywhere. And it's been 18 years and it hasn't gone anywhere. So a big part of my Christian life has been trying to figure out what does it mean to thrive in Jesus in the midst of these attractions? Mm-hmm. You talk about it like you're being pulled towards Christ. And you can yep. even hear that in your story of like sitting on the bench and having, you know, the book open. And it's just like, wow, the Holy Spirit is just like <laughs> dragging you in in a direction toward the Lord Jesus. And yet you also felt dragged towards <laughs> your past life That's of right. sin. So That's can right. you kind of explain these warring desires, yeah. the pull towards sin and the pull towards Christ and how that kind of works itself out in the lives of Christians? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a such a disorienting feeling on some level, isn't it? And I think so many of us experience it, whether we experience same-sex attraction or not, especially right. if you come to Christ as an adult and you've got some patterns built in. Because, well, on the one hand, I was for the first time in my life able to see that Jesus is good. But everything in my life Everything, the TV shows I watch, the songs I listen to, the conversations I have with my friends, had also trained me to think I am only my real and full and authentic self if I'm doing what my desires tell me, right? I mean, every mm-hmm. Disney movie is like, look within and you'll find yourself. <laughs> it's like, you know, a sophisticated Yale student. I was like, Disney told me to look within, but like everything <laughs> tells us that, right? That like, right, from a young age. Yes, yes. from a very young age. And I had tasted some deep romantic love too. That kind of stuff you see with butterflies and fireworks. And I mean, part of the reason that love is so entrancing is because God designed love. He is love. Like he wants us to experience it. So even though I had experienced counterfeit versions, they were still so powerful. Honestly, if I were my 36-year-old self, now meeting with my 19-year-old self, I would be like, this girl is not going to make it because I really struggled. I had a hard time, but what I desperately needed was all three of these things, God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. I Hmm. needed to constantly be confronted with what is actually true. Is following your desires going to actualize your real freedom and your real Mm -hmm. joy, or is it going to lie to you constantly because you know i'd given into all my desires multiple times and only really found pain and even if you were to end up in some sort of like dream hypothetical scenario where you just had a perfect life you know and never any pain from these things if you die apart from christ there is no hope and so so much of what was important in warring between these desires was coming back again and again to the word and being with people who loved Jesus and who loved me and who were like, let's do this together. None of the people in my community in the first, I mean, at least 10 years were disciples who experienced same-sex attraction, but they knew what it was like to be to be drawn towards other things. Yeah. And so we were able to, to stand together in that. So it was just so important. 
Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. You know, I think so often we think about same-sex attraction as this, like, other thing. But even as I was reading through your book, I'm like, this is exactly the same struggle that we all have against sex. Yeah. So there's so much common ground. You know, I feel like the church has kind of treated it like, oh, we don't talk about the, these <laughs> particular sins. And I want to, oh, you've done such a beautiful job of talking about your struggle with sin and then even into the Christian life, how you still experience the temptation to sin, yeah. um, just like we all do. This, like I don't know why do. this That's is right. surprising. But as you, you know, continue to turn to the word just to be refined by it, what did you discover about God's purpose and design for you, like in your identity and how you live that out? And then also his design for sexuality. There was really were two movements that happened in my discipleship. So first, what I needed to get square was, God, what is going on here? Because I was so agitated that God would say no to my attractional patterns. (laughs) It just seemed arbitrary or cruel to say no to same-sex relationships in my mind. And you talk about that, how you felt like, well, God designed me. So why would he design me with this desire? Exactly. And so I was just, you know, and the Bible, it says no to same-sex relationships. And I've learned Greek and Hebrew, and it still says no. So the fact the Bible says no is never what bothered (laughs) me. I was in this space where, why does God say no? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of being like, well, God, if you just explain to me why you say no, then I would obey perfectly forever, which is, you know, garbage, but whatever. When you're bargaining with God, you say silly things. And what really was important in my first movement, before I even got to understanding sexuality more fully, was God confronting me and saying, hey, if you are only willing to obey when you both understand and agree with me, you are not following me as God anymore. You are following yourself as God. And being confronted with, like, sometimes, obedience means choosing to obey before you understand. Now, I want to be clear, that can be abused by people who are sinful and want to hurt people. But when it comes to God who made us and who loves us, there are times we're not going to understand. And so I was pressed again and again into the person of Christ. I thought a lot at this time about the Garden of Eden, because God had put Adam and Eve in this beautiful, wonderful place and given them this vision to fill the earth and rule it together. Oh, so be- And the one prohibition they had was don't eat this fruit in the middle of the garden. If you eat it, you're going to die. 
And you're like, even vegans eat fruit. Like, what's the problem there? And it crystallized <laughs> for me because you would totally get it if the rule, if the one prohibition were like, right? don't murder each other, right? Because it's intuitive right, right. or whatever. But the fruit thing demonstrates like you can only obey that if you trust that the one who says it is for you. Yeah. Because otherwise it is a little arbitrary. And that's where the serpent got Eve, right? On the one hand, the serpent got Eve to see, oh, well, the fruit looks good. It's going to taste good. It's desirous to make you wise. The only thing on the other side is God's word saying you're going to die. And I felt in the same position. Like I had all these reasons why saying yes to my same-sex attraction was going to lead me to life. But God's word said, if you do this, you're going to die. So I was forced, like, how do I end up in a position different than Eve and Adam? I have to trust the Lord. And, you know, I didn't grow up in Sunday school, so I didn't know that the felt board answer is like Jesus, you know, to everything. But I had to ground myself in Christ. He is profoundly for me. And in any of us, if we start to try to bicker with this rule or that, we're already off base. Like at, at the foundation of Christianity is the revelation of Jesus Christ and that he is for us. And so even when we don't understand He's promised that it's for our good that he said certain things. And I needed that. That is ultimately mm-hmm. what kept me even after I first gave my life to Christ. Because it was like a dumpster fire at first, to be honest, seriously. I wanted to talk about this idea or concept of desire. Like, how does that play into the conversation? Because it's like, why is it that we desire? <laughs> that's right. Things it's a great that aren't question. for our good. Yeah, that's right. So how does that play into this conversation about sexuality? No, I think that's, that's a fantastic question. Because there are different answers in world religions, right? Like in many Eastern traditions, the answer to desire is you need to stop desiring. Like that's actually the solution. You cut off all desire and that is freedom. But that is not the answer of Christianity. And the profound difference of that answer, I think, is a more hopeful avenue forward because God himself is one who desires. He didn't create the world because he needed the world. He doesn't save us because he needs us. He created and he saves out of an overflow of his love and he desires to be with us. So the fact that we desire at all is a reflection of the one whose image we bear. Mm. The thing is, we desire stuff we shouldn't because we're fallen image bearers. We break everything we touch. The tragedy and the irony of being a fallen image bearer is we've so many parts of us reflect the goodness of God, but we have in our rebellion turned distorted. And so this happens to sexuality because the closer something is to revealing the gospel, the more dangerous it is when it gets warped. And early in my life, when I was trying, not life, but early in my Christian life, when I was trying to figure out, well, what does God say about sexuality? What is his yes? Because I realized I was only looking at the no, and maybe that was leading me astray. Well, you can't look at sexuality in the Bible and not run smack into marriage. And from Genesis to Revelation, marriage is clearly a major topic for God, like starts with a marriage, ends with a marriage. And the goal of marriage is to display the gospel. And sex is a big part of that. So we think about the good of marital faithfulness, which is not only sexual, but of course, obviously is sexual. Well, that's an element of marriage because God's relationship with his people is perfectly faithful. And our relationship with him is supposed to be perfectly faithful. So the reason human marriages are supposed to be faithful is because it's supposed to reflect the gospel, a key piece of which is faithfulness. Now, if you 
God's people have often been unfaithful. I mean, like, honestly, if you read Ezekiel 16, you'll get a really spicy example of this. So sometimes even like you were hinting, there can be an over mania around same-sex attraction as if gay marriage was the first thing to attack marriage. But like, honestly, straight people are just as good at attacking marriage through, <laughs> through any one of the means. Like we are all of us experience and express our sexuality in ways that fall short of God. Like we just do. We all need the grace and forgiveness of Christ, right? So we've got faithfulness. We Sexuality is a piece of marriage in that Marriage is supposed to be the beginning of a new family, right? So whether through biological birth or through legal adoption, remember, God says we're born again and adopted, all kinds of good family, right? The husband and wife are start this new family because God's relationship with his people starts a new family, right? So there's the picture again. Mm. Sexuality, and this is the desire piece. I mean, God could have made the process of reproduction as boring as cutting your toenails, <laughs> Not, you know, whatever. But instead, he loaded it up. With incredible desire, incredible pleasure, incredible intimacy. Now, we know it's broken, too. Sex can be painful and hard and wounded and all that stuff. But in its design, it's designed with all these good things because God desires to be with his people. And we should desire to be with him. So we desire all kinds of things. But actually, especially sexual desire can be this image of the longing for connection, which is why... Even if you are unmarried or if you're widowed or whatever, if you're in a position where you're, you're not able to express your sexuality with a spouse, any sexual desire you experience isn't like a nasty trick God's playing on you. It's actually still a picture of how much we should long for him. It's a theological lens into the beauty of the gospel and so sometimes when people confront desire, we're not going to go all Eastern and try to deny it fully, but there can be sort of a white knuckle, I'll just pretend that it's not there or like wrestle into submission or turn away from it, this like repressive mood. But usually when we do that, it ends up popping up somewhere else or we exhaust all our strength and repressing so long and then we just give in sort of a binge and purge, but with sexuality. In fact, it's okay for us to acknowledge in front of God the ways we feel, even when it's broken, because he knows. He knows we're born into a fallen world. My same-sex attraction is a result of the fall. It is not something I will carry into the new creation. At the same time, the fact that I am a sexual being is not a threat to God. He understands that this is part of the way he designed us to be, and he is a God who loves to do new things and to redeem. And so there's safety in him. And does that mean I get to pursue every one of my desires? No. And in fact, now I've got an eight-year-old. I remember when she was a toddler, right? So much of parental love is specifically not letting her do the things she wants to do because they're outrageous, dangerous things that she thinks are all right. Like, so like the Lord, he's going to keep me from doing certain things because they're dangerous for me. My desires are not, they're a broken compass, but he has promised in his word to give me the exact compass that I need. And I found that to be true over and over again. I need God's word and God's spirit and God's people together to move forward in healthy ways.
I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process. You (laughs) talk a lot about the Thessalonians verse, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. So how did you just kind of see the Lord just kind of chipping away at your sin, revealing more of who He is to you and helping you to uh, learn what it looks like to walk in light of what He has done for you in Christ? I honestly think I would have been sunk without my Christian community. Because what I needed, what I needed over and over again was safe people who love Jesus and who love me for me to go to and be like, hey, here's a stupid thing I did. I need to repent. Or here's a question that I have and I can't figure it out on my own. Or here's this thought pattern that I haven't been able to get myself out of all week. I just need to tell somebody who's not going to judge me. And so many times my peers, I mean, I remember specifically some of my peers being like, well, I don't know the answer either, but let's like think about it together. Let's look at the Bible together. Let's do it together. And I had Christians around me who did show me the grace and truth of Christ. They were not judgmental jerks. They did not hold me to a hypocritical standard. But they did hold me to God's standard. They did agree with God about what was sin and what wasn't. I was like, man, they're maybe what in Christian culture today, like in our generation and the generations below us, I'm like, they are really holding you to it. Absolutely. My sophomore year, I was like playing in the evening service worship band and also had a secret sexual relationship with this senior girl. And like knew that it was wrong, keeping it quiet. I mean, just like all so stupid. When I think about it now, I'm like, how could I possibly justify that? But finally, my very best friend, Sylvia, like just confronted me. She when she found out, she was like, You you have to stop. And she wasn't like, she didn't have a nasty sneering tone. I mean, if you knew her, she barely ever says anything that directive. You know, she had tears in her eyes. She said it with love to me. And if she hadn't said that. I don't know what kind of a cliff I would have gone over because I knew she loved me. I was able to receive it. Mm. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you is just what does it look like for us to come alongside each other and to help each other along, right? I just, I love the picture of like kind of Pilgrim's Progress. We just read through the new edition that Moody put out for kids. And you think about, you know, these pilgrims that are on a journey and they're just looking forward toward the celestial city with that faraway look in their eye. We're like, we're going to make it. We got, and they're trying to help each other along through all these various pitfalls along the way. I see that very much as what we do in Christian community, but I do find that we've done a really poor job of being honest, particularly about sexuality. I'm not just talking about same-sex attraction, but anything. When it comes to sexual sin, it just feels like, man, that's just so hard for us to be honest about. And then also, sometimes we just don't do a great job. Either we come too strong and we come too hard with the truth, or maybe we just come too hard with the love and we don't quite strike that balance of like grace and truth together as Jesus embodied. So what admonishment do you have or what encouragement do you have for those of us who are just kind of seeking to be good gospel friends to one another in this issue in particular? Well, and I think you, you did such a good job expressing it there. Like we often struggle with one or the other between grace and truth. Like we, you know, some of us have a personality where we lean towards grace. Others have a personality where we lean towards truth. And if you don't know which one you are, 
ask a friend, they'll tell you. <laughs> I already know, guys. Don't you tell know, me. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> me too. Me too. What are you? What are you oh, leaning towards? truth. Me too. Like, me too. So much. When I was first memorizing the fruits of the spirit, I just consistently forgot gentleness. Just <laughs> flat out. I'm going to tell you the truth, Rachel. You need to work you on know, that. No, I'm just kidding. For real. For real. <laughs> well, and this is also a pointer to how we actually need multiple siblings who know us well. One close Christian friend can be beautiful and amazing and a gift, but we're designed actually for a bigger community. We're designed to be a big family um, because we do bring different things to the table. One of the most important things we can do, if we have any influence at all over different spaces, to just create safety to mention where sexuality is hard. That can still be hard in many churches. Like we feel super awkward. We don't know how, and it's not like everybody needs to know your business, but if there's nowhere we can have the conversation that we are not going to be able to give and receive the help we need. It's not a talking about it so that we can permission sin, God forbid. It's a talking about real experiences so that we can get healing and so that we can get help. We need to create spaces and that might be one-on-one You know, we also continually need practice to be good listeners. This is probably for those of us who are truth types. Grace people tend to be great listeners. But sometimes, especially if we're skittish around the sexual conversation or the LGBT conversation, we can kind of listen, but with like our Bible ready to thump down on the table. And we need to learn listening to just like, we can talk Bible. We can. But we also need to gain trust first. And we also need to make sure we have the whole story. We need to listen I've got a friend who works in this space named Bill. The way he says it is, ask honoring questions and trust Christ in the other person. Mm. If we've been born again, we have the spirit and we're all immature in different ways. But listen, we don't necessarily have to hit the panic button. We've got the spirit and we've got time usually to linger. But I think also for those of us who... So for the truth sisters, right? Then it's like, listen a little more, just listen a little more. But for our girls who lean towards grace, there can sometimes be a misapplication of Matthew 7, 1, right? Where he says, judge not lest you be judged. And you think, well, like I just shouldn't get involved. Like it's a little confrontational, right? Because he's got that whole thing. We're like, well, what are you doing with this log hanging in your eye, worried about your brother's speck? But Jesus doesn't say, take the log out of your eye and then sit down and be quiet. He says, take the log out of your eye so that you can help your brother with his speck. Wow. We are, in fact, called sometimes to rebuke and to correct. Now, you need to take the log out. But Hebrew says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The main characteristic of sin is that it lies. Those of us in the truth, we're ready. We're like, I want to exhort. And like, sometimes we need to sit down and be quiet, right? Like we sometimes, but those of us who are on the grace end of the spectrum, people can tell when it's hard for you to speak the truth. And so your willingness to do so by the power of the spirit is an incredible witness to your love for the person. I would want someone to call me back from death. Sometimes we need to do that for each other. And it's scary. And women especially sometimes aren't good at it. You know, we're much better at gossiping than we are at actual like loving exhortation. So we, we've got plenty of room for growth. But that is what we need sometimes is to be like, listen, I love you. And this direction that you're going 
Like, let's look at scripture together because I'm concerned that it's leading you down a path that's only going to lead to bad things. I was so struck in your story by how you continually recognize, man, Jesus is better. Like, Jesus is better than this other thing that seems pretty good. So how is Jesus better than the power of sex and romance? What I would say before I even answer is that no one can live off of the fumes of my conviction. And so if you're listening and for whatever reason, like you have either not come to Jesus or you've just kept him at arm's length for a long, long time, there is no amount of hearing other people that's going to be able to replace you drawing near to him yourself. He is better, but just hearing about it intellectually is never quite enough. It's not the same thing as experiencing it. And so I would just plead to anyone, maybe you kept your distance for a long time, whatever. Like it, You will only really know it when you actually draw near to him and give him access into your heart. Because that's, you know, we can do all kinds of things where I go to the Bible study or I go to church, but I shut my heart off to him. He's only actually better if we let him into every space because he is good. So my desires want to say that I won't be fully alive unless I follow them. But in following Jesus is actually where I find the power for forgiving myself and others for blessing other people. I'm a selfish person by nature. I'm actually much more led into life by following Jesus. My desires say, if I don't secure a romantic relationship, I will be alone. Mm. And I happen to be married to a man, but like, he's just a temporary gift. Jesus is the only one who will never leave me alone. I could be thrown in the darkest prison cell and he promises he will never leave me nor forsake me. My desires want to lie to me and say that if I pursue them, I will always be happy. I will always be happy. The truth is, no matter what happens in this fallen world, there will be tears. And my desires won't be the ones that wipe away the tears from my face in the new creation. Christ is going to be the one who looks in my face and, like a good older brother, wipes the tears away from me. And my desires will always tell me, well, you'll be more desirable in the future when you have maybe this amount of sexual partners or when you have that body or whatever it is, right? Jesus doesn't love a future version of me. He loves me right now. If you are in Christ, God's face towards you is not like checking his watch and tapping his foot. He's not rolling his eyes at you, even if you failed today. Yeah. His face towards you is affection and love. You can say that, but if you haven't tasted it, you have to get into a place where you're putting yourself in the midst of the means of grace. If you feel like you fail at praying, go grab somebody and say, pray with me and for me. If you feel like you fail at Bible reading, like grab somebody and say like, you read this Bible with me, (laughs) like help me. You know, like we're not designed to do this alone. Go get people. Be shameless. Be like the widow who won't stop asking. Like, get people to help you. Like, go serve the needy with people. Lose yourself in actually pouring out your love. Like, there's so many things he calls us to, and we get wrapped up 
in like our social media vortexes or whatever it is. And he is calling us into a full and beautiful life. And he's there with us and he's promised to give us family. Now it's, you know, it's family and there's a lot of family members that annoy us all, but you know, but it's still family. (laughs) So I just don't want us to miss out. What's helped you in kind of your fight for faithfulness and what's helped you kind of lean into dependence on the spirit that resides in you as opposed to Mm self-dependence? I I bet people can identify with this. Like you're a capable woman. (laughs) Like you are a smart woman. You are a strong woman. And so I think for me, a lot of times, my disposition or bent is just to buckle down, yep, try and get a little it bit done. harder, get the thing done. I don't yep. even want to take the time to pray because we got to check this box and move on to the next thing. But how have you carved out, I guess, rhythms of yeah. depending on the Holy Spirit just continually for the strength that you know you need to continue fighting for faithfulness? Yeah. So the classic evangelical disciplines of Bible and prayer reading, like I'm a Bible varsity letter holder you know what i mean i'm, so I'm like yeah you. i would do it and someone's it like prayer, prayer podcast i'm like no <laughs> yeah, you know, on, the, on the prayer i'm more like the backup on the freshman team you know where i'm like i know how to do this but they're never putting me in you know i'm not the first string girl which is good it's good for my humility because right i am i will default to myself it's god has given all of us gifts to serve the church but the problem with our gifts is we're like whoa these are such great gifts i'm just gonna live into them one of the things, this is like so stupid, but I actually make myself pray before I read my Bible. It's like my Bible is my treat time. <laughs> so I'm like, I could use this you encouragement. Need to pray. Like you need to pray. Yes. I get all kinds of distracted or whatever. My pastor just led us through this book called 21 Days to Childlike Prayer, I think. Oh, cool. It was so helpful for me because he just had all these. And then the Praying Life by Paul Miller is also something that has helped me before. The 21 Days to Childlike Prayer was just reminding me, hey, pray for specific things. Because I think I would do this sort of general like, pray that you would bless me or whatever. You know what I mean? So like, actually, he wants to show up in your life. If you pray for things that are specific, it can help you. Yeah. So that's been a recent thing that I'm like, oh, that's such a good reminder for me because prayer can be a weak point. I try to make sure I don't make promises to pray and then not keep them <laughs> because I, you know what I mean? That's or say, I, that, I'm going to pray for you in that and yeah, then never and follow then just through. not do it. Yeah, exactly. So I try to be more of a woman of my word, but either praying right when I get her saying like, I'm praying for you right now. Right. But yeah, like just building it into my habit. I know I'm excited to read the Bible. Not all people are there, right? They're like, oh, it's really hard to read the Bible. So in this case, that tip won't help you. But I'm like, I'm excited to read the Bible. So I'm going to make sure that I say some prayers before. And because I do like the Bible, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to pray a little bit of the scripture as I go on it. But probably one of the places where this my need for the Spirit was more shown to me was this time, a few years into my Christian life, I'd gotten really good at sort of like if I was tempted towards same-sex lust or whatever, just sort of white knuckling and be like, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it. But I'd get into this habit where like, I wouldn't think, wouldn't think, wouldn't think, and would think, or, you know, and would fall. And so I got into this sort of habit of like resistance, but then eventually giving in. And there was this scenario with a friend where I was feeling those same things. And I was like, no, what's going to happen is I'm always like, I always do this. I resist for a certain point and then I always give in. And I got into this trap in my mind, like, doesn't matter how hard I work. I just always give in. And yeah. the Lord led me to that verse in first Corinthians, I think it's 10, 13, where like, basically I never have to say yes to sin. God's not going to lead me into a temptation 
Like I have the spirit that, I, that he hasn't going to give me a way out. Like the possession of the spirit of God means when I'm faced with a temptation, he promises to help me. And I was like, oh my goodness, you're right. Because I've faced temptations where I try to white knuckle out of it and I fail. And that was a turning point for me to be like, God has made a promise in his word. It's right here. And that was a turning point to me to say like, so in the future, when I face temptation to be like, listen, I don't have to say yes to this. This has no power over me. I can choose to say yes, because God hasn't taken away my freedom and I need to repent, but I don't, the lie that I have to has been obliterated. And so instead by the power of the spirit, I can say, listen, this is a lie. And what's also helped me is in those moments, like just telling a friend, like, hey, here's something mm. I'm facing. And say, so tell a friend, it just, at this point, it just dissipates. The power of secrecy is robbed. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about how that journey, what that's looked like to be honest with people when that's, you know, same-sex attraction still feels like a little bit of a taboo topic, especially if you're in the South. But one thing I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about has to do with being a parent. And I know oh, not yeah. all of our listeners are parents, but one thing that I have noticed in talking about this particular facet of sexuality in the South versus when we were living in New England is just the mass amount of fear that yeah. is revolving around the topic of, you know, what do we do if our kids are exposed to this idea? Yeah. What do we do yeah. if they're exposed to this conversation? How do we educate them once they are exposed? You know, right. at what age is it too much for them to handle? And so can you just kind of offer your thoughts on how do we navigate especially in this cultural moment, this whole conversation about gender with our kiddos. Yeah. And this is such an important question. I hate to say this, but there are almost no good resources on how to talk to young kids. Because up in Boston, I live in Boston. My daughter's kindergarten teacher was a woman married to another woman. Right. So I can't wait to have this conversation. You can't wait. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I know things are different in other places. <sighs> There's so many things to unpack there. But one of the things I want to say is, we want to help our children see more of what we're for than what we're against. Because mm. God is a God of yes. And that does mean that he says no to some things, but his first foot is always yes. When he took on human flesh, he was saying yes to humanity. And he died on the cross because he's also saying no to the ways we pursue idolatry and death. But he's a big yes. And so one of the things we want to say is, it's really age appropriate to talk to little kids about the fact that marriage is a picture of the gospel. And in fact, male and female is a really important part of that. This love across difference, that the gospel is a love across difference between God and humanity. Male and female is like much less different than God and humanity, but it's still a picture. Yeah, Kids can understand that. And this is so hard because from what I've gathered, typically in the evangelical church, the way of doing sex education is like you buy your kid a book at the age of 12 and then you send them to go read it alone. Which it turns out is not a very effective method for dealing with some of these things. And once they're done, then you get them a purity ring. And then you get, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and so we're living in a different world. So one of the things we need to do is we need to be able to talk about what reproduction is using the real words for our body parts. That also will protect your kids from abuse. If they can't tell you that someone inappropriately touched their penis, they'll end up using confused language. They actually won't know what to say, and they're more prone to being hurt. And I know that makes us feel awkward or uncomfortable. It's like super hard. You feel awkward. But it's sort of like if your kids are young enough, they won't know. If they ask you where babies come from, you can explain very basically where babies come from. Like honestly, most humans grew up on farms. You just like see the 
horses reproducing. You don't have to explain it at all. But now we're city people and we're like, I don't know where babies come from. (laughs) But this helps create in our kids' minds a strong link between sex and procreation. Now, the thing is, we, along with everyone else, broke that link. Protestants jumped on the contraception bandwagon super early. And I'm not saying I'm against contraception. But we did it basically unthinking and untheologically. And so we, like the world, end up thinking of sex as only something you do to express love or to experience pleasure. And so we've cut it off. And so sometimes when we have the positive view, right, like marriage is a picture of the gospel, sex is a gift for bonding and for creating new life. We've set up this thing that when there are no's, they're more intelligible. They don't end up feeling as arbitrary. And another thing that I've had to work hard with my daughter, because, you know, little kids are very concrete thinkers, is pointing out that, listen, every single person is made in the image of God. And they might not follow Jesus, but, like, our desire is to see them reconciled with the one who made them. There's never been a better time to hang on to that verse in Ephesians that says, our enemies are not flesh and blood. But these spirits, right, these principalities, these things that are dragging people off to death, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Even if people are doing crazy stuff, even if they are misrepresenting us, calling us names, whatever it is, like our enemies are not image bearers. Human beings have received a stamp of God upon them. And what they need is to meet the one who made them and who redeemed them, right? And so we want to help our kids see even if people disagree with us about sexuality, we're in the same boat. We need redemption. I understand the fear. You know what I mean? Like culturally things are confusing, but here's the thing. It's never been a better time to display the gospel. Missionally, 50 years ago in Boston, it was not meaningful for the gospel at all to be a man married to a woman forever. Mm. You know what I mean? That's just like called normal life. Now, to be a same-sex attracted woman married to a man who stays faithfully married, people are going to be like, what is that about? Yeah. It actually is an opportunity for mission. I want us to understand when things get dicey, there might be more persecution. But if we actually hold to what the Bible teaches, it is going to look beautiful and sane. And people are going to be drawn to it because it's good. And our kids will be too. We've got to hold close to Jesus in the scriptures. And we need to figure out together what best practices are. There's a lot we just don't know yet. We're having to do this for the first time. Like even 10 years ago, Christian ethics was maybe seen as like quaint or silly, but now Mm -hmm. it looks immoral. Our parents didn't know how to help us with that because it wasn't true for them. Our grandparents didn't know it wasn't true for them. We haven't been trained on how to raise our children when Christian ethics looks immoral. And I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed by that. You haven't been equipped. We just need to acknowledge that. This is a new scenario. So we need to help each other and not attack each other when we come to slightly different decisions because we're just trying to figure it out. So much here. Could do a whole series on this, really. Probably should at some point. I really appreciate everything that you've unpacked today. I just want to recommend as a resource, Born Again This Way, 
such a helpful read. It's not purely academic either. It's incredibly, it's almost a memoir with truth embedded within. Very, very easy to read and yet so deep. So thank you for putting pen to paper and sharing what God's done in your life with us. I also have heard from many, many people that my next read in relation to kind of what we're talking about here at the end of the conversation is Rebecca's The Secular Creed. Yes. I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's a short one too. You can rip through. I bullied her into writing it. (laughs) It's dedicated to me. She takes credit for your book too, doesn't she? She should. Like she's the only reason it exists. (laughs) She literally, she midwifed that book. Absolutely. So Secular Creed is Rebecca trying to, I don't know if you guys have these yard sides down the South and in Boston, they're everywhere, you know, full of things like women's rights are human's life. No immigrant is illegal. Science is real. You know, love is love. All these different things. We are like, this is literally like the Apostles Creed, except it's just secular stuff. And so she takes some several of those claims, you know, Black Lives Matter, trans issues, abortion, LGBT, like same-sex attraction. I think she does another one, maybe women's rights. She examines it saying like, what are the things that are in fact true here? But what are the ways that the secular version gets it wrong? How does the how does the gospel interact? It's so it's so fast. It's really, really good. It's written to help Christians understand. I love that. Do you have any other resources that you would recommend for somebody who wants to think more deeply about the topic of sexuality? Could yeah. be any. Yeah. So my favorite book that's just generally on sexuality actually came out in 2015. It's by Jonathan Grant. It's called Divine Sex. And it's just a great overview. Um, really good book. When it comes to LGBT questions, there actually are, and this is very different than 10 years ago, there's a lot of great resources. But another one that came out a little while ago, but I think is so helpful still, is called Messy Grace by Caleb Kaltenbach. He grew up in the LGBT community. His mom was married to a woman. His dad was a closeted gay man, didn't grow up Christian at all. In fact, saw Christians treat his community terribly, but then became a Christian when he was 16. And now he's a pastor. Mm. So he's able to walk through the grace and truth aspects of these conversations in a really powerful way. And that's like almost a beach read, very easy Mm. to get through. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about questions around transgender identities, Preston Sprinkle has a book called Embodied that is a fantastic overview of the various ways that the Bible and theology and all this stuff sort of speak into transgender identity. So I'd highly recommend that one, too. So good. Well, I know you have a hard stop here in the next three minutes. And one of the questions that we ask every guest who comes on Journey Women is who has had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus? So if you have a short answer to that question, I would love to hear who it is that the Lord has used in your life just to continue pointing you uh, to the hope that you have in Him. Oh, that's so hard to pick just one. Early, early in my faith, it was Sylvia, my friend who I told you about, who told me to, to stop it. She was just such an anchor for me, and she still is. But um, later this season in my life, Rebecca has also been a friend who just consistently points me back to the Lord. So it's friends. Even though my husband's great and he also points me to Jesus, but friend love has been such a source of ah. spiritual strength for me. Praise God. Well, thank you so much for being our friends, even at a distance today. We are so grateful for the opportunity to have you on the Journey Women podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow. We know that today's topic was tender. If you have questions or things that you need to process after listening, please 
take time to send a message to a friend in your local church context. Know that we are praying that the Lord will use this conversation to cause you to move toward His Word, to cry out to Him in prayer, and to walk in confession with women in your local church body. We will be here next week to discuss a very relevant and helpful topic to build on this one on pain and heartache with my good friend, Nana Dulce. Make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss that conversation. And while you're there, consider sharing this summer series or leave us a rating and review. We would really appreciate it. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.